0: Hello again, it's Rahalastapa with me, Richard Herring, and my guest this week is the incredible force of nature, the indestructible Barry Cryer. Uh, Very, very excited about this one. I know you're going to love it. He's an absolute legend and one of my personal heroes. Uh, He's 86 years young as we record this, and uh, hopefully we'll get through it. (laughs) I guess we won't have put it out if he he doesn't get through it. Uh, Anyway, do come and see these live at the Leicester Square Theatre. Uh, There's tickets uh, available for most of the run through September and October 2021 on Monday evenings. Um, Please book ahead. They are selling very fast. And you can watch them on the live stream and you can catch up on the ones we've done already and see all the ones that are coming up. Uh, that's the only way to get the video of this series, and the money from that, I should say, is going to uh, a cancer research charity and the Museum of Comedy. So uh, do give generously to that, and you can sponsor me uh, running in a half marathon as well, which is coming up in November, uh, justgiving.com monoball, uh, and you can give me some money that will go to help hospitals in North and East Hertfordshire, but not South and West Hertfordshire! Um, thank you very much. Let's sit back, relax, and enjoy Rahalastava with the amazing Barry Cryer. Come on. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Leicester Square Theatre. Please welcome a man who's just ha- been having sex with a clone of himself. It's Richard Herring. Thank you very much. Hello. Hello, my fine friends. Welcome. I've dressed up, got respect, you know, when I'm with the young kids, so I've, I've dressed, I'm all cool. And then, then I dress up in my proper suit. Uh, welcome, oh shit, I've, I've got my glasses. This is gonna be a nightmare. Uh, <laughs> good, let's go for it, we'll see how we do. Uh, welcome to Rich Herring's Leicester Square Theatre podcast. Uh, I was talking to Rahul Estebal the other day. Uh, he calls it Rahul so we'll see how that's. See how that works out. Um, uh, I had a dream uh, that in the brief sleep I got the night before last, um, in uh, which my ear fell off. My ear just fell off. For no reason it fell off and I had it in my hand. And I did, it was good because I did what I think I would do in real life if that happened. I just tried to stick it, I just hoped if I stuck it back on again quickly enough. and And it was very real to life in that it sort of stuck for a second and then, fell off again but uh it's uh, um I don't know what I don't know why I had that particular dream about losing a body part that's uh I, I can't be trusted to keep anything that's in a pair that's the that's the that's the problem these days uh but uh I tell you having cancer is not all bad that is that's what I'm here to tell you uh it's uh Uh, Since I've had my thing, they see you every three months. I get a scan, a full body scan every six months for free. It's good, thank God for the NHS. So I saw my uh, oncologist. It's like being a first-class passenger on the Titanic, basically. It keeps things going. But uh, the big news was um, that my testosterone levels are good. Um, They're all right. Even even with one half, I'm more... It's higher than many men with two, that is, because I'm such a... I'm so that one he's pumping out. He's, he's still, I don't believe any of that, by the way. It's, it's, I'm, I'm being, uh, I'm sort of quite interested in that element of uh, of what's happened to me and that um, why why balls are associated with manliness and gross and balls and all that sort of bullshit, especially when they're so weak and vulnerable. Uh, but uh, I don't think it matters if you've got testosterone or not either, but I've got loads. So that's uh, just, it's just, you know, it's kind of reassuring, isn't it? Still, it's all right. I can still, you know, theoretically, I can still get it up. We haven't yet had, uh, last six months, had an option to to practice that. But it's, uh, theoretically, if I ever do have sex with a clone of myself, that would be fine. Um, Is that all I've got for you? My goodness, is that really it? Yeah, okay. Uh, (laughs) Okay. Good, we're going, we're going without glasses. We're going to see how that goes and see how it works. All right, my guest this week. I want to get straight on to my guest because he's an absolute cracker and we've only got limited time before we kicked out. Uh, he's probably best known for playing a busker in Run For Your Life. <laughs> the, a very, very unsuccessful Danny Dyer film. <laughs> Will you please welcome, ladies and gentlemen, the legendary Barry Cryer. Here he is. Barry Cryer. I've got a mic here for you, Barry. I've got a seat for you. It's all good.
1: Barry Cryer. That reaction, I thought somebody else had come (laughs) on. Loud and clear, Richard. The old boy's a bit deaf. Okay, I'll keep it... I'm uh, wearing herring aids. (laughs) You,
0: You can just answer any question you think I've asked. That is the... That's the main... Well, what do you remember about uh, Run For Your Wife? Do you remember appearing in Run For Your Wife as a busker?
1: No. <laughs> That's true, Rich. Not? I don't remember do that. It was is, very recent. You'll discover several <laughs> things that I don't remember. It was you and Rolf oh, Harris. Oh, yes, a busker. Oh, it's all coming back. <laughs> oh, dear. Can we move on? Next question, We will move
0: please. on. We'll move on. To, look, there is so much to talk to you. The first thing I want to talk to you about while I remember uh, it's just a, a recent news story that came out that Morecambe and Wise, yes. who you worked with uh, on many occasions, uh, did
1: not like Monty Python, or expressed dissatisfaction with Monty Python. They were off stage in Norfolk, wasn't yeah. it? Yes. Yeah. And uh, Eric and Ernie were asked about uh, Monty Python. And uh, of course it was a tom- completely different format and... Uh, Eric wickedly said, I like the beginning and the end. It was a bit in the middle I didn't like, you know. <laughs> it was a completely different format, uh, Monty Python. So, and they were more orthodox. I worked with them a lot, with the great Eddie Braben. And, uh, you know, you, you had to change gear with what was happening. And Python, to me, was superb. Because if they got to the end of a sketch and they hadn't been able to think of the end line, Grown Chapman would come on, no, 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 and stop <laughs> it all. They had a device in to cope and they go on and on through. No, Eric and Ernie, who were real icons, uh, it was fascinating for them to be asked about Monty Python.
0: Yeah. It shows, though, doesn't it? I think that it's always the challenge of the new coming up That's through. That's right, yeah. And so they were... I mean, but it's, 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 They're both... Both those things, Morecambe and Wise and Monty Python, are so much my heroes that it's a shame to see them even that there was anything between them.
1: And what is true, if you ask Monty Python about Morecambe and Wise, they couldn't, they worshipped them, you know. So it wasn't reciprocal in that way. But no, Eric and Ernie knew that this was happening and that this this show is good and it's new. So being Eric, of course, he had to get the line in, you know.
0: But I think you, I mean, it, it, what I was interested as well is Michael Palin and he went, oh, that's a... He was be that and said, oh, it's a bit sad that they feel that, so he was still a little
1: bit hurt. We right. had a, a session one day when there was Ben Elton and Aid Edmondson and myself and one or two others, and we heard that we were being stitched up. Uh, Stephen Fry was with us as well. And uh, we were going to be old versus new, they'll right. go for each other. And we all met before and said... Let's agree on everything. <laughs> we really ruined it for them. Whatever any one of us said from the other side, oh, that's true. That is true. <laughs> marvelous. Day that.
0: I think the thing about you, Barry, is you know the, your your career, which is over sixty years long now, but you've always stayed interested and fascinated by yeah. comedy. And the new things coming up haven't been a threat to you, have they?
1: Can I mention an absolutely? dreaded four letter word on this because it's true they did a roast for me on my 80th birthday and arthur smith brian as we know my mate was the host and i'm sitting here like i'm with richard now and uh, he gestured at me in front of the audience and said this man welcomes new young comedians he puts his hand over the fence he shakes the hand come in join us he welcomes them and I still think he's a cunt.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Made me laugh, I'm sorry. You, you insult old friends. Yeah. I don't insult people I don't like. I can't be bothered. <laughs> but you know, people are overhearing, you probably had this in your <laughs> pub lo- or lot. something. You really insult each other because you're old friends. It's got to be taken in context, you know. But people overhearing it think, oh, that's dreadful, you know. <laughs> There's a, oh, the dreaded C word, here he goes. Uh, I love Jewish humour. I'm not Jewish, but a rabbi in Northwood called me honorary Jew, friend of the family, which I thought was wonderful. And uh, oh, I was introduced to Jewish humour at school. There was a, a guy called Louis Lipman, and we were kids together, and I first got my taste for Jewish humour. We had a maths class and the master said to Louis Lippmann, Lippmann, what's 10% of 52 pounds? He said, exactly, sir, what's 10%? <laughs> what were we talking about? Oh, the dreaded <laughs> He'll get used to me, you are used to me. Uh, the dreaded C word, right. Uh, Jewish joke, Morrie the stereotype is walking down the street looking depressed and he meets Jaime. Hi, says, Maury, what? He said, I've just been in court. Tell me, tell me. He said, I got fined. He said, you got fined? What was that all about? He said, it was, uh, it, that's bad. He said, it's worse, I was only a witness. <laughs> you were fined, you are a witness. Tell me, what? He said, I go in a box, and put my hand on a book, and they said, your name? I said, Morris Abrahams. And the judge said, are you Jewish, Mr. Abrahams? I said, don't be a cop. <laughs> <laughs> We move on. That's the end of it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> But you, you've you've been a big supporter of uh, of, of comedians all the way. What I, what I love about about you, I think, is just that, that you're fascinated by the process of comedy. And you've literally, I mean, if you name any name from the last fifty or sixty years, you will have worked, you've at least worked, met them, but probably worked with them, probably I've been written for them. S-
1: so lucky I've been in the right place at the right time, or whatever. And as time went by. I never wrote alone. You, go, you know this, you go ding-dong between the two of you. And uh, way, way back, David Frost, who I called a practicing catalyst, he was <laughs> marvelous with people. And he had a whole gang of us, including the future Pythons and yeah. everything. And then you got writing partners within there. David Frost had noticed Graham Chapman and I had become mates and put us together as writers we yeah. never thought of writing together and we wrote a lot of shows together and it was just a joy and john cleese used to say to graham chapman are you being unfaithful to me with baz <laughs> <laughs> which is me and uh, frosty was uh, just brilliant
0: and what was it like working with graham was it was he was he was he drinking then when you were working with them uh,
1: yes he... bless him i used to go to uh, highgate and uh, we'd work in the morning, and about 12 noon, he'd go, ooh, yes, maybe just the one. <laughs> and you go to the angel pub, and that was the end of the day. It would go into decline, bless him. Yeah. And uh, we carried on and carried on, and then uh, Python went off filming, and they were told to keep an eye on him. He's now in withdrawal, you know, AA and everything, dear Graham. And uh, the others had to keep an eye on him to make sure he didn't have just the, you know... And uh, oh yeah, the, the the splitters writers were still amicable. We we're still friends. I, yeah. I cared about him. I mean, we used to go and see him in hospital and everything. Oh yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, but that's you really have sort of bridged that gap. And again, I think a lot of comedians and writers, as tastes changed, they you know they got, they're like the more and wise with Monty Python. I know they both survived that and carried on, but. Is you know you're seeing the next generation as a threat, but you worked with the Pythons and then you worked with yeah. well, a lot of the you know you worked with Les Dawson, Tommy mentioned
1: and Wise and Graham Chapman. Now you think where's the old man going now? Uh, a recent Louis Baff has written a brilliant new book about Markham and Wise, and the great Eddie Braben changed Markham and Wise into Eric and Ernie. You remember living in a flat, and in bed together, and Eric said no, no, no. And Eddie told me he kept pursuing it. And then he had an inspiration. He said, if it was good enough for Laurel and Hardy, it's good enough for you. Laurel and Hardy in bed together. And Eric said, oh, yeah, yeah. But Eric still didn't like the image. And he's quoted in this book. Eric said, I'm going to smoke a pipe. When do you ever see a queer with a pipe? <laughs> and if I'd met him when he said that, I said, have you met my friend Grant Chapman? <laughs> A gay guy who smokes a pipe, Eric. Oh, God. I'm Honorary Gay as well. Yeah. Kenny Everett called me Honorary Gay. My wife says, if you ever come out, it'll be such a relief. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, Ev, dear Everett, said to me years ago, he said, uh, how long is it now, you and Terry, my darling? I said, uh, it's over 30 years, he said, You, over 30 years, and four children, what a (laughs) smokescreen. He got married uh, to Lee, who'd been married to Billy Fury, and then Kenny Everett. She's now married to John for a long, long time, and I keep in touch. And she knew the score about Dear Ev, but it was a very affectionate marriage, and then a sort of friendly divorce. Then she met John, and they asked Everett to be best man. And he stood up to speak at the reception, (coughs) and he looked at John, and he said, don't tell her about us. (laughs) They were great, these people.
0: Yeah, well, Ken, I mean, again, Kenny Everett was, I mean, sort of out on his own, really, wasn't he? In terms of it was just this oh, he sort was of shooting star that came in from nowhere as a DJ and, and did these incredible characters. And you came up with a lot of the names for the, for the characters of Kenny Everett.
1: Cupid Stunt. <laughs> his character, uh, Cupid Stunt, who stayed definitely impassable and cross mm. the legs yeah. and everything. And he did the Parkinson show, and Parky said to me, "Cupid stunt. I'll have to rehearse that. <laughs> Getting that wrong in front of the audience. You know what a challenge."
0: But it's interesting. Is you think of you know people think of the 70s and the 60s as being you wouldn't you wouldn't do
1: something as risque as that. But that is a very rude no. joke. And Mary Hinge. <laughs> think about it. <laughs> Spoonerisms. Here he goes. Yeah, I- Another great man I worked with, Dick Vosburgh, the American, who was superb wordplay. And he wrote a brilliant spoonerism sketch for the two Ronnies, which they did. They then did two more spoonerism sketches. He wasn't asked to write them. Written by guess who? Ronnie Barker, who took the idea and took over. And Dick was furious and he sent Ronnie Barker a telegram. Parker, you're a brick.
0: <laughs> Think about it. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, it's, it's kind of unbelievable to just the wealth of talent and the people, you know, and every time I hear a story from you, I, be I heard one where you were talking about having written briefly for Bob Hope even, you know, so you've, you've written... That was a
1: Parkinson show. Was it? Yeah. And, uh, <coughs> excuse me... Welcome to the Sound of Mucus, which was, Christopher Plummer did that, that line when he was in Sound of Music. Keep moving, old man. Bob Hope, John Junkin and I were asked to uh, write the hundredth version of Thanks for the Memory for Bob Hope. And John couldn't be there that night. And Bob Hope hadn't met Parky at this stage before he went on. And uh, I sat with Bob Hope, and he said, "What's this guy like?" I said, uh, "Oh, good. I said, "He'll interview you from a kneeling position," I said. <laughs> and he started unburdening himself to me, Bob Hope, saying, "Generation back there don't like me. you know, I was the president's man and all that, and I supported the war and everything. He said, "I'm the great Bob Hope, but they don't like me back home, the current generation." So he said. I've got to prove myself in the first few minutes. Oh, this is a great Bob Hope, is it? He said the audience. He was yeah. He He never got complacent about it. He wanted to get the audience all over again. You know, if you've heard this about me, never mind that. Am I being funny? He was completely... Insecure in a very positive way. Yeah, yeah.
0: But then again, that's another example of a comedian. You know, you think you would think Bob Hope must feel I'm at the top of the game. He has this massive career, and yet he's still threatened by the next generation, still challenged by stuff. He
1: had to go with the flow, Bob yeah. Hope, and he recognised that, which yeah. I admired.
0: Yeah. But you've there's has there, has there ever been a point where you felt you were you were being swept away because you you never have been. You've always seemed to navigate it and find your way through to the next thing and what is that about you Barry that makes that work
1: insecurity <laughs> no just go with the flow I yeah. just look back I'll say I've been so lucky and my darling wife says that's false modesty no I've been in the right place at the right time doing a job I really enjoyed and getting paid for it but you know your job finishes and you go oh what's the next one I never had a career plan I thought I'm enjoying this, I hope somebody asks me to do something else now. Yeah. Solid base of insecurity again, but it, it works, yeah. it's okay. Uh, and do you, feel, do you still feel
0: surprised by comedy and writing comedy? I've, I've just done a job with Greg Davis where I was just writing gags with Greg for the new series of Buzzcocks. And um, it was really good fun to go back writing gags again, you know. But yeah. there, was, there was one gag we wrote which had two parts to it and they were both really funny. Um, it just didn't feel quite right, but they were both funny bits. And then we took out one of the bits that were, one of the funny bits, and suddenly the joke was really funny. So we extracted a funny line and just left what was there, and it was suddenly the joke. You don't know, do yeah. you? In anticipation,
1: <laughs> uh, E. B. White, somebody in American, did the great quote. He said, "Analyzing comedy is like dissecting a frog. Nobody laughs, and the frog dies." <laughs> you can't analyze it it's like you the audience i respect yeah if you don't laugh i respect that i will not try and convince you that no that was funny no i would insult you they're the arbiters and some of the bosses through the years on television had no background in comedy they didn't feel it you know and they'd say oh they were like this there's no they and them that's insulting you you're the audience yeah. you know so do you still get can you still surprise
0: yourself are you still you write a joke that does work or doesn't work and does that reaction surprise you or do you think after all these years you've kind of nailed what comedy is well i don't
1: do it anymore <laughs> well, so you still do i've it. been retired <laughs> <laughs> no this is a joy being here with yeah. you and i told you i was with joe brown on tuesday and danny baker on thursday and here we are together yeah
0: well it's, you know, but you've still got it and you've until recently at least you've still been doing your shows with uh, Ronnie Golden and... Oh know, yes, and pianist. Colin Sell at the Piano, yeah. my mate, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: And Willie Rushton and I did shows together. Oh, yeah. he was something. Wonderful. Owen Dudley-Edwards, a writer, when Willie and I first did the Edinburgh Fringe, uh, Owen Dudley-Edwards reviewed our show, which was called Two Old Farts in the Night. And... Uh, he referred to Willie as my Surly sidekick. <laughs> that was insulting, the great Rushton. I thought, I'm Junior to Will, you know. And there was a film called When Harry Met Sally at the time. I said we should call our show When Barry Met Surly. <laughs> <laughs> Willie was a one-off. We played Belfast during the Troubles, and we were so well looked after, and you know, but they said there were people who wouldn't come over to do it. And I said, no, come on, this is what we do. And we stayed at the Europa Hotel in Belfast, so you may know it. It had been blown up about three times. And on the check-in form, it said, how did you hear about this hotel? (laughs) And Willie put news at (laughs) ten. And we met a, a blind guy, a piano tuner, with his dog. And he was doing the piano in the afternoon. We were doing the show, that. Night, obviously. And he joined us in our dressing room, and he's a lovely guy chatting away. And Will and I are getting a bit embarrassed now. We want to say, look, we've got a show to do. Okay, mate. And then he suddenly solved it. He said, Well, thank you. Great to meet you. He said, Have a good show tonight. And he picked up the dog's lead and walked to the door. And Willie said, How cruel of them to give you a cat. <laughs> <laughs> There was a guy who did about 100 parachute jumps for Charity, and he was blind and quite rightly much admired. And somebody said, how do you know when you're getting near the ground? He said, the lead on my guide dog goes <laughs> slack. <laughs> I love blind humour. We've got blind stand-ups now, haven't we? By yeah. Corsland and yeah. several. Yeah. The, yeah, that's the guy who does, uh, Would I Lie to You? and uh, have I got news for you, the yeah. blind stand-up—I do admire that. I think that's wonderful.
0: It's interesting. I mean, you've worked with everyone, and you've sort of seen everyone off, Barry, along the way. I mean, I don't know if you're doing something to them—they're seeing them, They're, seen them all you've off. You've seen them off. Where's Willie? Everyone we mention is is no longer Gone. with us. Yes,
1: that's true.
0: And yet you're still here, and you're—you. I was saying to you backstage. The last time I saw you, I think, was outside the light entertainment party, smoking a fag, drinking a beer, with David Nobbs, and that was the last time I saw David Nobbs, so yes, Yeah. you took him out.
1: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what Dear hap- Jeremy Hardy, who we lost, <laughs> Yeah. it wasn't just a comedian, he was a campaigner. And uh, he'd been on a march in Palestine that was bombed, he could have died. And when we saw Dear Jeremy off, he was Battersea to Arts Centre, people flew in for that. Yeah. There were several hundred people there. It was a real testament to this man, and Jack D, our mate, you know, does the radio show now. Sorry, i have the clue. Jack D was speaking, and I'm always Baz. And uh, Jack D said, Jeremy said, we'll all pop off year by year, and old Baz will speak at every bloody <laughs> memorial. <laughs> Oh, boy.
0: What's the secret, Barry? How are you... Stay? I mean, a, you've, you're a hard-living guy and you always have, you know, you've always enjoyed a drink. I mean, in moderation, I think you've always had a smoke.
1: I drink very little in lockdown at home. Yeah. This is interesting. My wife can't believe what's happening. I'll put a stopper in a bottle of lager and drink the other half tomorrow. I'm not making that up. But when I go down the pub, in the pub garden now in these days, I'll have two or three. Yeah. But it's interesting how things happen. Why? I never thought I'd cut down drinking <laughs> locked up at home, but I have. Yeah. A lot of tea. Oh, tea, as Les Dawson said, tea goes through like a road. <laughs> Start drinking tea, you're in the loo all the time.
0: Yeah, well, I'm already at that stage, so I'm sure, I'm sure you'll be speaking at my funeral. I'm at, I hope you will. I mean, I don't know if you book. Don't oh, do, book for do
1: you want to oh, Nothing wrong with laughing at a funeral. Dennis Wayne Wilson, the great, Producer did the Hancocks and Steptoe and Son and everything. Ray Galton and Alan Simpson, who were mentors of mine, yeah. a bit older than they, just treated me as a mate, you know, and I thought, oh, this is great. And we lost Dennis, and it's uh, St. Paul's in Covent Garden, our church in our business. And Dennis is there in the coffin, and Big Alan Simpson stood up to speak, and we thought, this will be dry, this will be funny. <laughs> and it wasn't. And it was a corny old thing by the Reverend somebody, I'm not gone, laugh as you always did, I'm just round the corner. And he did it, you could hear a pin drop, and we thought, oh, respect. And then he turned to the coffin and said, I told you, Dan, not a fucking laugh, in it." Stunned silence, and the the biggest laugh ever. Bob Monkhouse's funeral at Amersham, there was a massive turnout for Bob. Mitch Murray, the songwriter, our mate, turned up. And they did the usual courtesy, the family party go in first. But he didn't mean to. But he got mixed up with them and has being shown in. And the man came up with a list and said to Mitch, excuse me, sir, are you on the list? Mitch said, I certainly am. I'm one of the people being cremated this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we'll move on from we'll minutes.
0: Well, I hope you, you know, I, the last time we spoke in... In Edinburgh, I, I said, uh, you know, you weren't to die, and you've been good so far, so don't die, Barry. That's, I'll be very upset, so please don't. Uh, but um, uh, there's a, there a thing, I think you talk about Hancock, um, I saw somewhere being not being able to, even a comedian of that level, not being able to work out audiences and what kind of audience you you going to get. And I think he said something like, does the audience meet
1: up? before every, every gig and decide what kind of audience they're going to be. Do you remember him saying that? Oh, God, yes. Tony Hancock was an archetypal example of the basic insecurity that is underneath some of these brilliant people. <coughs> and Ray and Alan, of course, and everything, writing. And Tony got paranoid in the finish. I, I said James and I just to double act and... Kenny Williams is getting a big laugh, oh, no, don't, no, no. and it was catchphrases. And yeah. He got so insecure that gradually he was dumping everybody. Yeah. And Ray and Alan told me they dropped Kenny Williams, who they really admired, but they said, we're not doing that anymore. You know, yeah. funny voice, and he got a laugh with one line. Uh, and they said, we... Re- We didn't want to drop him, but we did. But then Tony started abandoning everybody. Yeah. And asked them, uh, they came along with Beryl Virtue, the agent, I think, Ray Galton and Alan Simpson. What does Tony want to talk about? And Tony turned up and said, uh, Well, it's over. Shall we call it a day? And left. Yeah. It was just amazing. And he made. The Punch and Judy man, he made a film which wasn't very good afterwards. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And Sid James told me, he was driving down Piccadilly one day and he saw Tony on an island in the middle and shouted, Tony! Nothing, just glazed it. It was really...
0: It is strange. And so, I mean, so some comedians are like that and some comedians are insecure. so insecure that they, that they can't yeah, even... But... Tony
1: went to Australia, as you know. Yeah. And uh, Eric Idle and I... Uh, ...were lined up to write for him when he got back from Australia. Oh, really? Oh, boy. And of course, as we know, sadly, he didn't come back, but he did. Willie Rushton married Elaine, uh, an Australian. And Willie would be down in Oz now and again, and got to know Tony in Australia. And Tony's brother, Roger Hancock, was my agent. And he asked Willie to bring Tony's ashes back from Australia. And Willie Ruston's going through nothing to declare at Heathrow. And they all knew who it was, Willie Ruston. And almost as a joke. One of the men said, What you got in that what you got in that case, Mr. Ruston? He said, Tony Hancock. <laughs> oh boy.
0: <laughs> but it's interesting that, you know, that, that you know, the the, 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 was the comedians who thrive and enjoy it, and then the, the it almost seems the most successful ones don't. Enjoy it as much as that. Les I mean, Dawson
1: was the reverse. Right, yeah. Uh, Les was the same off and on. Yeah. I mean, behind closed doors, respect in his own life. He lost his first wife and then married happily a second time. I wouldn't presume about that. But Les was just. David Nobbs and I wrote a lot for Les Dawson. And we'd be doing the show that night, Yorkshire Television, and we'd all be in the bar before. And Les was at the bar with a load of people laughing and talking. And David and I would apologise to the other people and take him away. And say, sit down, Les, you're working tonight. (laughs) And I was interviewed once about him, Richard. And this woman had an agenda, what was behind the mask of comedy, that jolly, cheerful man, Les Dawson. And she kept on and on at me, and I wasn't going there. I said, it was just the same. (coughs) And there was just the cameraman and the sound man. And finally, almost in desperation, she said, was there a Les Dawson that we never saw? And I said, if there was, we never saw him. <laughs> Cameraman laughed and ruined the tape. <laughs> and they said to me afterwards, they said, sorry about that. I said, no, they said, oh, we've been doing a lot of these with her, she's on the same tack with everybody, behind yeah. the mask of comedy, you know. They vary, comedians alike. All of us are uh, sure. cheerful ones and mournful ones, and yeah. secure ones and insecure ones. But you
0: know. still see yourself as an, Do you really see yourself as an insecure one? It seems you're one of the happy ones, Barry.
1: Well, I'm enjoying today. <laughs> I think you know you're the mates out there. You're not some sort of enemy force. Uh, yeah, I, I finished up doing a job I enjoy, and uh, I think it was a great. Tom Stoppard, I think, said uh, i have been overrated about himself. Right. And I, I mean it in a way because I worked with so many brilliant people, but I was the co-writer, the straight man, the warm-up man, the after-dinner speaker, the blah, 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 you know. But they were Premier League, I thought. I was, I was good at what I did, but I was the support act. <laughs> I always saw, saw myself like that.
0: Yeah, I don't think that's... I mean, it's, it is modest of you, and it may, maybe it's what you believe, but I don't think it's a fair... You know, it's... it's because I think the thing I... Uh, that I uh, One of the many things I admire about you, but you and Michael Palin, I think, are the, are the two people I look at, and I think those are the careers that I would, you know, want to emulate, in that, you yeah. know, he's done amazing stuff, and, uh, you know, everything he's done in every sort of area's worked. And same with you, but also you just carried on. You just... what You loved the job so much... Yes, you, that you carried on, and you and were also a guiding hand for uh, you were. You were very kind to everyone coming up, uh, and well, I and hope are so. very well respected by by yeah. everyone as well.
1: But I'm arrogant in my humility. <laughs> 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 Spoke to Mike Palin yesterday about right. this Eric and Ernie and Monty Python oh, did you, you yeah, know, yeah. thing. Yeah, but we have fellow Yorkshiremen, Mike Palin and I. We met way way back in that gang years ago, and. He's been married to the same woman for many years, and so have I. Not the same woman. (laughs) Yeah, we just say, he calls inertia, Mike Palin, he said uh, about his marriage. He said, you meet the right one, you marry them and say, done that. (laughs) And dear John Cleese, got to four wives, didn't he? (laughs) Oh boy. <laughs> anyway, sorry about this.
0: <laughs> no, look, it, this is absolutely fantastic all the way through. Um, one of the great pleasures that uh, by by knowing you, and this, I know that you do this for a lot of people, is that on my birthday and on the birthday of people that you're aware of, you will ring up, generally ring up and, and provide yeah, a joke about birthday people's joke. birthdays. It's extremely, then, it's an and extreme. And then inflict
1: a joke on them.
0: Yeah. yeah. It's, extra- it's such, a, I, th- I tell you, it's one of the nicest things that can happen in that. In the well, world. you
1: just, wanna, you know, who else is still here? You <laughs> think, oh, come on, ring up and wish him a happy birthday, you know. Wally Soyinka, do you know that name? No. It was his birthday the other day. And when it was Nigeria, he was a hero in, in the Civil War, went to prison and everything. We were mates at university. Right. He sang Tom Learer songs and everything. Wally, we call... Well, all well, the Wally. Wally Soenka. It was his birthday a few days ago and I don't know where he is. I wanted to ring it, you know. <laughs> this great man.
0: It's a very nice thing. To, I mean, you know, and, and I, it sort of feels like a little blessing from the Pope and it feels like a, the joke I feel... I, a, I could never do any of your jokes justice because I'm not really a joke teller in the same way that you are. But I feel like I'm not even allowed to tell anyone the the jokes that you, that you give to me, if I can remember them. Do you remember what, you, what joke you did to Do you want to do one? Year? I would like, I don't want to do I want you to do one, I don't, I don't want to do one. Oh, oh, you can oh. do the one. Do you, remember, do you remember which one you did for me this year? You had one this year. It was quite, it had, it was, it's... Do you remember the one about, um, uh, it's about a train and a lady on a train?
1: With the Bible? Yeah. Oh boy, I'll put it in context. <laughs> <laughs> Not far from here. Chic's restaurant, Leicester Square, uh, years ago, and there was John Mortimer. John Mortimer, Ron as, as you know, and all that. And he was in a wheelchair, and he gave me a wave, and I went over, and we chatted away, and he said, come on, joke. <laughs> and it came flooding back to me recently, and I told him this story. There's a man sitting opposite a sweet old lady on the train, and when the train sets off, she takes a Bible out of a bag, and begins to read from it silently. Next station, oh, Bible back in the bag. Happens again, train sets off, takes the Bible out. Next station, Bible back in the back. Now he's riveted and it happens a third time and he, he's getting off the train soon, he can't bear it. And he said, do excuse me? She said, yes. He said, every time the train leaves the station you take your Bible out of your bag and read from it. Yes, yes, I do, yes. When we get to the next station, you pop your Bible back in the bag. Yes, yes. Do forgive me. Why are you doing this? She said, why don't you fuck off? <laughs> and I told that to... I'm still enjoying that one. Yeah, it's a good one. I told that to John Mortimer in Sheiki's Restaurant. And of course I raised my voice at the end. And the people at the next table, who's telling John Mortimer to fuck (laughs) up? He wiped his eyes, he said, it's made my day, this. And I told Penny, Penelope's widow, that very story recently, she'd never heard it. She said, oh, I'm telling everybody. (laughs) It's a gem, that is, you can't see where it's going. Couple looked across the road at a man at a bus stop. And the wife said to her husband, that's the Archbishop of Canterbury. He said, "Oh, stop it. She said, go and say hello and ask him. Uh, So he goes over and says hello to the man. He said, are you the Archbishop of Canterbury? Fuck off, said the man. So he came back and she said, did you ask me if he was the Archbishop of Canterbury? What did he say? He told me to fuck off. She said, "Now we'll never know. (laughs) (laughs) This is all your fault. I love it when you swear. You can say about the another. old man, F words, C words. I, we heard cryer that afternoon.
0: I would like to apologise for my guest. <laughs> I don't know where he gets it from. Well, um, you, st- you started out very early on at the wind performing at the windmill in between dancing. Well, naked, sort of n- not exactly strip shows. Well, we it? have
1: had reunions as years went by with your mates at the windmill. We were not strippers. They weren't. They were no. nudes. Yeah. It was unbelievable, your mates standing there while people danced and sang around them. And you could sit with a mate in the canteen and she's wearing a G-string and very little else. That was allowed. If you were found anywhere near the dressing room, she was sacked. The old man, Vivian Van Damme, V.D., (laughs) uh, he ran it very strictly. But in those days, the Lord Chamberlain, the government ruled in the theater. And this little theater in Great Wimbledon Street had opened Mrs. Henderson and Van Damme, and it wasn't doing very well. Whoever had the idea that, I don't remember, but nudes, Lord Chamberlain said no. And Van Damme had an inspiration, and got reproductions of famous nude paintings. This apparently is true, they did a play and a film about it. And he goes to see Lord Chamberlain, and shows him these paintings and says, this is what we're doing. And Lord Chamberlain said, aloud. It's another age, isn't it? And they yeah. got permission to have nudes. And during the Blitz and the horrors in London, we never closed. The theatre never closed. My mates go on up on the roof with a tin helmet on watching the searchlights and everything. Yeah. Then some witty witty soul retitled it, We Never Closed. <laughs> we never closed. Didn't put any clothes on. No, it was uh, six shows a day, six days a week, 36 shows.
0: And I can't imagine people were like.
1: Well, they up didn't come the in to comedy. see you. <laughs> I was bottom of the bill. I auditioned at 10 30 in the morning and I was on the stage at 12 20. I thought, what's happening? <laughs> and the old man had me in his office between the fish tank and the desk and changed my act. You tell that too early. That one's good. Tell it a bit later. Here's what you could do. He was an absolute brilliant man. And you did your uh, 12 minutes, Bruce Forsyth was top of the bill, six times a day. And uh, you wore pancake on your face in those days and you're not going to put it on and take it off six times. So I go for a walk out, I'll go over to the pub and (laughs) all the stallholders shouting hello darling.
0: (laughs) And uh,
1: it was an amazing era there. And Bruce... uh, said to me one day in the canteen, oh, packing it in. I said, what are you talking about? He said, I think I've got as far as I've got to get. I said, what are you going to do? And whether he meant it as a joke or not, Bruce Forsyth said to me, oh, opened a little shop tobacconist or something. I said, what? <laughs> the following year, 1958, I have read and heard my mate Bruce Forsyth is the new compere of Sunday Night at the Palladium. I was delighted. Wonderful. And I'm walking down Kingsway and he's just come from a press conference. I went, Bruce, oh, it's great. I said, What's happened to the tobacconist? <laughs> he said, postponed. <"Perspound."
0: laughs> and it certainly was. But that's but that's show business, isn't it? Is that all those stories where people get close to giving up and something yeah. happens. I mean, the Morecambe and Wise sort of bumped into each other again, didn't they, after stopping working for a bit and they bumped into each other on Charing Cross Road or something yeah. like that, didn't yeah. they? And just those little bits of luck and
1: happenstance. But at the windmill, Richard, they hadn't come to see you telling no. jokes, they'd come to <laughs> see the nudes. And uh, there was a jury called Jimmy Edmondson who went on one afternoon and started his act and the guy in the front row opened the newspaper. (laughs) And Jimmy said, oh, I see you brought your own comic. (laughs) And then it livened up a bit when they came out of the pub. They could buy a ticket and save for all six shows. Right. And uh, it was hilarious. There was an announcement uh, at the end of the show. Some would leave and others would climb over the seats to get near the front. Uh, We call it the Grand National, you know. (laughs) And there was an announcement over the loudspeakers. Patrons are requested not to climb over the seats, which was drowned by the noise of patrons (laughs) climbing (laughs) over the seats. And one guy came in one afternoon wearing some strange glasses. They were like binoculars. They were for use at horse racing and football and everything. But he came in wearing these Strange glasses. He, oh, I'll be a, get a real close view of the stage. <laughs> and Harry, the uh, house manager, heard about this. And he was a big guy. And he came and removed this man very delicately. He almost took, took him off his feet to eject him from the theatre for wearing these glasses. Yeah. And the, you walk downstairs to get out of the theatre and this guy's still wearing the glasses. <laughs> Fell down the stairs and broke his leg. <laughs> 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 oh, don't... Well, you have got me started on <laughs> No, I, I was going back to Leeds, a tail between my legs. I thought, I've come to London, conquer London, and oh, I've got an audition at the windmill. And when the voice said thank you at the end of my act, I thought that was it. But it was yeah. dressing room 12A, and I was on. I couldn't believe it.
0: Yeah. Well, there you go. And that's that's how it and everything just sort of progresses from there, and you have bits of fortune, the right person. But if you're working all the time, the right person comes and sees you or sees the
1: work you do. You, you got to be uh, number one in, uh, in Finland. Number one in Finland? How f- <laughs> Few of us can say the same. They gave away a car with each record. <laughs> no, a man called Sheb Woolley, country singer and actor. He is one of the baddies in High Noon, going to kill Gary Cooper and everything. And he had a big hit in America, The Purple People Eater, sort of E.T. And it was issued in this country uh, sort of a hit, but I think contractually or something, it wasn't issued in Scandinavia. Right. And they pushed out my little cover version on Fontana <laughs> Records. And I got the call one day, you're number one in Finland. <laughs> oh, it's been in a downhill ever since. <laughs> Did you ever go to Finland and... No, go? I've never made it to Finland. Oh, they're waiting for you at the airport. I met a screaming. Finnish guy once, this is true, who okay. claimed to remember it. I think right. he was just being kind, uh,
0: It'd be a big, big deal. There could still be the groupies waiting for you yeah. at the airport. i would be getting on by now, Gary.
1: <laughs> <Barry>. <laughs> and somebody literally said, Oh, Baz, you keep going to the finish. <laughs> Stop it, Cryer. <laughs>
0: and so who do you think is the... I'd like to ask you who do you think is the, the biggest arsehole you've worked with over all these years? I'll be, I could ask you who's the nicest person you've worked with over these years if you prefer, but is there, there, there anyone Oh, I
1: don't know. There was uh, an audience with Ronnie Corbett was on uh, television the other night. You know, a lot of nostalgia isn't on television now. And Ronnie Barker was in the audience and uh, Ronnie Barker said to Ronnie Corbett on the stage, who's the nicest person you've ever worked with? <laughs> Ronnie Corbett said, Basil Brush. <laughs> <laughs> no, the... I won't go into. I didn't like. Well,
0: you've still you you worked all the time because you, there were there were there were people in the you know things changed in the eighties between the seventies and the eighties right and a lot of comedians of the seventies. As as is sort of happening a little bit now, things do change, and it's hard to change with the times. I guess if you're stuck in stuck in your ways. But there was a, the seventies comedy was there was a lot of nasty racism and stuff within that. Oh and then, yes, and then things change. But it it doesn't you know it feels like that part of the reason that you that wasn't a problem for you was because that wasn't that wasn't your style.
1: No, I didn't. Although here's a confession, Richard. Uh, we did a radio show called Hello Cheeky years ago. Yeah. Me and Tim Brooke Taylor, John Junkin, Dennis King at the piano and everything. And I was the funny black man who used to ring up. Right. And I heard it on Radio 4 Extra not long ago and it made me wince. Yeah. He was an amiable con man. It was so flippant at the time. But yeah. if it's wrong now, it was wrong then, you know.
0: It was, but you. I mean, I think everyone ha- will have something like this Because, you know, things change and hopefully improve, everyone will have stuff like that. But I think it, it's that inability to change and to realise your mistakes, I suppose, you know. Yeah, we, everyone, Dau- in comedy, everyone's going to make mistakes, I
1: think. Les Dawson used to joke about his mother-in-law, Yeah, who he loved. And yeah. they were filmed together. She was embracing him. She said, these are just jokes, she said. That was... the." woman herself you yeah. see and Jermaine Greer this no platforming a university or whatever saying we're not having them we don't agree with them no Jermaine said get me up on the platform and have a go at me with this is a democracy you know yeah. don't ignore and reject people you disagree with get into them debate with them and sure. see what happens you know
0: yeah well I think talking is always a good then I suppose comedy has that role of you know, testing the water, finding out what, you know, finding yes, out where things yeah. are, and you know, and and as you say, it's the audience that decides. So if the if things change and there's a sea change, and you know, some some of those '70s comedians managed to carry on working, and some of them carried on doing similar. Well, stuff the
1: heavyweights, Tommy yeah. Cooper, and Eric and Ernie, yeah, and but they, I mean, they Les were, Dawson, just yeah. stood back and think, "What's going on here?" And they survived it, you yeah. know, thank goodness. But uh, they acknowledged things were happening. They yeah. knew it.
0: But I think we've been, through, you know, we've been through those things before and it's, it's just about being... It's who you are, I think, and, 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 and where your context, heart is. It's context. It? It's context, isn't it? I mean, comedy's all about context.
1: Yeah, my mate Chris Stevens, who writes for the Daily Mail, and he did a long interview with me on the phone and uh, printed it up and sent it to me. And one of the two things I just said flippantly were meant as a joke. In cold print, you think, oh, boy, what's that? Sure. So I mentioned that to him. I said, that bit and that bit, it isn't what I actually meant. And he, to his credit, he said, is it too Daily Mail for you? <laughs> I said, yes, it is. And he never printed it. Right. That's what a real friend, he thought, no, yeah. old Baz didn't like it, forget it, you know. And that, that, was, that was good of him. He could have sure. just printed it anyway.
0: Yeah. Of Course, but that's you know that I suppose that's the problem with uh, Twitter or whatever is that the co- the context of a joke that works in a room or with a certain I know you've, I've heard you talking about this it's, it depends whether you like the person telling the jokes one one comedian can say a joke that's right and you and it will offend you and then someone else can say exactly the same thing and you'll find it funny because of yeah. the, because of whether you basically
1: whether you like the person yeah or the, it's true it's a personality and the whatever. Or how
0: you feel about the it. The rapport with the yeah. audience, yeah. So it's all about context. But that's, and that's the sort of, there, there are jokes. And I think that's the thing with social media that you realise is it's a different platform than being in a stand-up club. So you can't just, you know, it's going out to a different audience. So you have to, just as you wouldn't tell certain jokes at, a, at, a, at your grandma's funeral, <laughs> you know, you can't, you have well, excuse to Excuse me.
1: Graham Gard, my old friend, <laughs> yeah. never tells jokes. Yeah, He once told this one. What about this for the start of a joke? A ventriloquist was stranded in the outback in Australia. You're interested. (laughs) His train hasn't turned up, he's marooned. And a farmer arrives on a horse with a dog and some sheep. And the ventriloquist thinks, I'll cheer myself up. And he said to the farmer, "Can can I have a word with your horse? What? Can I have a word with your horse? Yeah. He said to the horse, how's it going, mate? And the horse said, bute mate, run of the territory, nice warm barn, sleeping. Bonza, farmer's looking. Can I have a word with your dog? Yeah. How's it with you? Same with me, mate. Nice warm kennel, chase the sheep all day, three square meals. What's the problem? No worries. Can't believe it. Can I have a word with that sheep? And the farmer said, that sheep's a liar. <laughs> Graham Garden, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> oh, there's a story. Willie never stopped, dear. Do Don't stop. Dennis Spicer, a brilliant ventriloquist. We lost too early, bless him. And we would, I did a show called Joker's Wild. And we had some of the real heavyweights on. Ted Ray was on it, it was big stars. And Dennis Spicer, the ventriloquist, was booked. And he hadn't turned up. This is long before mobiles and emails and everything. They'd rung his wife and his agent. He set off ages ago. And he finally erupted into the room. He said, sorry, traffic. This is true. And he opened this case and he took out a little doll. And there was a sort of hook on the wall and he hung this little doll on it. He said, must have a pee and a cup of tea. I'll be back in a minute. And he went out of the room. And Ted Ray said, we're all professionals. We shouldn't look in Dennis's case. (laughs) Let's have a look and he opened the lid and there was a snake with rolling round eyes and a funny rabbit and goodness knows what else. And Dennis came back in the room and the doll on the wall said, he's had a look in your case, Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> he was hovering at the door. Oh, brilliant.
0: And I'm sorry, I haven't
1: a clue, of course. I've been going on for... Oh, 1972. What's that? Forty-nine years. Yeah. There was only just a minute. it Was longer than us, I think. Yeah. But uh, I did two of the first series only because the great Humphrey Littleton wasn't available. I did chair, but then I was not relegated. I was put in the team, and I was delighted. But in the original, of course, it had. It was a hangover from. Uh, uh, sorry. I'm oh, sorry. I'll read that, read that again. again. Yeah. Uh, Graham Garden and, so, and the BBC wanted uh, another s- series and what, he said what can we do? Something that isn't really script based, it's got the rounds in but, you know, we can do it like that. And John Cleese and Joe Kendall and Bill Oddie were involved to start with. And yeah. They wanted a script, they didn't like this messing around atmosphere. Right. So what happens now? And They put me in the team and uh, Willie Rushton. So, and then we went on from there. It was just great.
0: Yeah. And you've been playing big. You've been touring it and doing big venues with it. We did
1: stage shows. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was amazing playing a big arena with a, with a radio show. You couldn't believe what was happening to us, <laughs> you know. Hammersmith Apollo and Wembley Arena and up in Salford at the massive place. Yeah, yeah. yeah we couldn't believe it. We are just a little radio show, we thought. And there we are. But it's ama- you know. It's, I mean, it's, it's an amazing
0: cast of people, and it's obviously evolved, and new people have come into it as well over the years. But it's, I, I suppose, it's, it's familiar, wa- and 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 warm, but it, but it's always surprising, so. and it was always quite ch- quite near the knuckle as well. Yeah, wasn't we it, lost
1: uh, we lost Tim Brooke Taylor certainly. Of course, yeah. Graham analysed it as usually said. Uh, Tim's the one the audience identified with. Baz is the old man who tells jokes. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, I'm the other one. <laughs> <laughs> no, and we lost the great Littleton. Jack D's done a brilliant job. Sure. But Jack D was so modest when he took over. He said, I can't fill those shoes, uh, but I'll try. <clears throat> and we were at the Rose Theatre, Kingston-on-Thames. Early days, a recording. And during the recording, there was a pause. And a man in the audience said very loudly... Not the same without Humphrey Littleton, is it? And Jack D said, "Ah, dear Humph, I wonder where he is now. I envy him." (laughs) (laughs) He got a round of applause. I mean, to defuse that moment, it's brilliant, 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 isn't it? Yeah. And uh, I think Humph is smiling down on Jack D. Yeah. The old boy here this afternoon, F words and C words and everything, but good. The great Littleton, we were up in Harrogate or somewhere, and he was going into hospital the next day. So we're all round the breakfast table in the hotel the next morning, and Humph had a bowl of prunes. And he took the first prune, and tasted it, and looked round the table. He said, how can you fuck up a prune? (laughs) I'm quoting somebody else, out. <laughs> oh, and he was on the radio being interviewed, and uh, his many interests, including uh, birdwatching and everything. And uh, the interviewer said, I believe you're a keen orthinologist," And Holmes said, you mean word botcher. <laughs> <laughs> And then later he said, "No, I didn't. I thought of that on the way home." <laughs> and as the Queen said recently, "Recollections may vary." No,
0: it's um, well, it's it's just it's just an astonishing uh, career, Barry, and you're such a uh, wonderful man. And so it's, dead I'm I'm you know, oh, thank you. No, it's 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 a massive massive honour for you to come on this show and give us your. <laughs> For You, I mean, um, I was gonna do that, right? Like. <laughs> You're not the oldest person. In fact, we had Parsons on, yeah. yeah, Nicholas Parsons. Do you remember him? Uh, oh, 1996, come on. he was 95 I, when he was on, I think.
1: I ripped off uh, a Noel Coward tune. I used to get away with murder, uh, and Noel Coward had got it for his friend Cole Porter. Uh, a song, Let's Do It, Let's Fall in Love, and uh, I would. Ripped off the tune and wrote a new lyric. Uh, every bird with a trill does it. Every lark and every linnet. Nicholas Parsons still does it, but it only lasts a minute.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> and when he got ill, I took it out of the song. And when he came home, he rang me up and I told him that. He said, put it back in.
0: Oh, <laughs> he was great. He, was, he, he told me off a lot and he was very... He was great. But the, the recall you've got is astonishing. I mean, he, was a, he had a very sharp mind. But your recall and your memory for jokes... You know, I, yeah, I, I can't remember. I, can't, I couldn't remember the my joke memory told me in my, real life.
1: I mean, come on, whatever, <laughs> whatever your name is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I thought it was Saturday earlier today, yeah. for instance. And instant, you know, short term memory loss I yeah. get, you know. But jokes, I suppose. I like go, Ray Cameron, Mike McIntyre's dad, Cameron McIntyre was his name. We were together one afternoon, and Ray said, you drive me mad, he said. Everything I say reminds you of something else. <laughs> I said, funny you should say that. Said, <laughs> shut up, he said.
0: But it's, the love, it's, the, it's the, the, the love of the job, and I think that's, what, that's why you've...
1: Well, I got s- a job. I've got a marvellous wife and family. I've got, I'm up to hearing friends. And I did a job that I enjoyed and got paid for it, you know. Yeah. Uh, lucky or what, I just want to shut up. <laughs> Can I, I tell a parrot joke?
0: You, I, you must hear, tell a parrot joke.
1: I'm known for parrot jokes, so I'm, I'd like to tell you my favourite. A woman saw this beautiful blue and gold parrot in a shop, and she said to the man, he's gorgeous, how much? He said, 20 quid, 20 pounds. 20 pounds? He's beautiful! He said, well, I've got to be honest with you, he's got form, he's got history. He was in a brothel. And to put it delicately, he's got quite an extensive vocabulary. She said, 20 pounds, take a chance on that. So she took it back to the flat, took the cover off, and the parrot looked round and said, new place, very nice. And the two daughters walked in, and the parrot said, new place, new girls, very nice indeed. And her husband walked in, and the parrot said, hello, Keith.
0: (laughs) Sorry, you must never apologise. I'm sure you never will. Look, it's been. Um, I won't keep you any longer, Barry. I need a wee. You must need a wee. I want. It, I want you to tell a joke. I don't do. I don't do jokes.
1: I won't inflict it on
0: you. <laughs> I don't. I can't. I can never remember jokes. I, I in lockdown. I made a pledge that I would bin bin all my pre-lockdown material. So I, I, even the jokes I have, I'm not allowed to tell anymore. So you know. Not funny, is it? Well, it's not good a good way to end the show. Should have, should have ended on the parrot.
1: It's been a pleasure, obviously. No, it's really, it really,
0: you. and you must come on in another five, six years. I don't we'll get out much.
1: No. This is a joy.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, look, everyone loves you, Barry, and thank you so much for everything you've done, and 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 for all the support you've given. Uh, My selfish pleasure. You. Thank you, and ladies and, thank and gentlemen, you. the amazing Barry Cryer. <laughs> thank you very much. We'll be back next time. I think we're sold out, but thank you very much. Take care. You have been listening to Bar with me, Richard Herring, and my guest, Barry Cryer. Thank you to Scamp Regard who do the music now for this wonderful podcast. I'm indebted to my producer for this show, Gwyn Davis. I'm also indebted to Ben Walker, who does much work for the show, including putting together all those adverts that you love so much. They're great, aren't they? And of course, thank you very much to Chris Evans. Not that one. No, not the other one either. No, not the Daily Telegraph editor. Why would I be indebted to him? I'm not indebted to him at all. Chris Evans from GoFasterStrike.com and his team who uh, have been fantastic to see again back at the Leicester Square Theatre. Also, thank you to the Leicester Square Theatre. It's great to be home. Thank you to the brilliant audience who came along to see it live and the people who watched it on the streaming service, which you can do for all the others as well, if you want, and you can catch up on the ones you've missed. This is a Sky Potato Fuzz and GoFasterStrike.com production. Look out for my new book, Would You Rather, with Richard Herring, out in October. You can pre-order now, wherever you pre-order your books and audiobooks. And Stevie Martin will be featuring uh, on the audiobook as well, if you enjoyed her last week. Thank you very much. See you next time on Part.